0: Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode. This is a guest episode. Uh, Last week I talked to the director, Jessica Kingdon, and her producer, Kira Simon-Kennedy, about Jessica's new film, which is called Ascension. Um, So Ascension is a documentary. It's about everyday life for working people and consumers up and down the economic ladder of contemporary China. It spans from factories to luxury resorts to amusement parks. Why I found the film so interesting is because, you know, there's a lot of conversation about China today. It's usually a geopolitical conversation among politicians and journalists. What is China up to? Is China our friend? Is China our enemy? That kind of thing. And I think a lot of us in the rest of the world are very curious about life in China. Um, Some of us have never been to China, but even those who have been to China, we kind of find it hard to describe to others around the world because there's just so many layers of political messaging um, in all the coverage of China today. So I think this film provides a really valuable service in just humanizing people in China, making them seem less exotic, and kind of showing that the economic struggles in the rest of the world are also shared in common with people in China as well. The film is really beautifully shot, it's got a cool soundtrack by the composer Dan Deacon, and uh, it's received a lot of critical acclaim, it's up for a lot of awards and prizes, it's actually been shortlisted by the Academy Awards for Best Documentary this spring. Um, So how do you watch the film? Uh, If you go to the website ascensiondocumentary.com, Instagram ascensiondocumentary one word, uh, you'll see a lot of listings for future screenings and film festivals. The easiest way to watch it, probably, is to go to ParamountPlus.com. You can subscribe, do a free trial, whatever, and then you can just stream it um, in your own house. That's how I watched it. The last thing is, this interview was done with a lot of our listeners from the Discord in in attendance. So the second half is a lot of questions from our listeners. um, Being read by me, but um, shout-out to Vince for actually asking a question. Um, And uh, yeah, we just kind of heard Jessica and Kira's thoughts about a lot of different scenes from the film, but uh, hopefully the, the conversation is still accessible to those who have not seen the film. If you're interested in joining the Discord, of course, please consider signing up uh, via Substack or Patreon, um, or you know, just supporting us. You can always contact us on Twitter at TTSGpod. Email is time to say goodbyepod at gmail.com. And uh, really quickly, I'll just leave you with some sounds from the documentary. This is a preview uh, from the trailer for the documentary. So far, how's, how has it been so far in terms of getting people to watch it? How do you feel? How has how, the experience been in terms of? I feel like word of mouth has been building, and, more and more, and pe- more and more people have been asking to watch it.
1: Yeah, it's been quite a surprise, honestly, the kind of reception that we've gotten. Um, when we made it, we really didn't know that it would have this kind of broader appeal and be successful in this kind of way. We were very content to, you know, play at a few. Uh, festivals. And um, so the fact that it's been picked up by MTV and that we're nominated for a bunch of awards and shortlisted for the Oscars, it's its not something that we ever anticipated or expected. So um, yeah. it's great. I think partially I got kind of lucky since um, China is in people's national consciousness. People are talking about China. People are interested in it. So the topic itself already, um, there was kind of a built-in audience Um, and also I was just lucky that, so I was lucky that I was already interested in that from the get go. Um, but also I think it's interesting how people are responding to this vision that I put forward and are entertained, you know, entertained and interested in it because, you know, we found it interesting and entertaining and like funny and sad and a lot of things at once, but we weren't sure if other people would, so... You know right. that it's getting this kind of reaction is awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, Kira, what it's do you really think? Yeah, uh,
2: the, the, the most surprising thing to me, um, and especially some of the folks who are maybe in this podcast right now, is how many people have seen it twice. Like how many people saw it once at uh, at a festival, and they saw it get online, and they came to theaters, or people who are coming back with more people. Like that is so amazing and so touching to me that people. Mm-hmm really want to see, some people see it more too. that yeah people want to come back and like notice different details every time um and the kind of feedback we're getting it's been an odd time to put films out in the world because of the pandemic and everything being so remote so we get a lot of echoes we've had some in-person screenings but a lot of it is just sort of messages or people saying they heard someone else talk about it on the subway and it's just <laughs> amazing
0: um but let's you know maybe back up a little bit um and one of the things you wrote, Jessica, you said you came up with a title for this uh, ascension quite late in the process after you had, you had shot and edited a lot of things. Um, and we, we should talk about the title because there's a really interesting story there. But you wrote that for the longest time, you just called this Untitled PRC Project, right? What What is the origin stories of Untitled PRC Project? Like, what were you, how did you get into this idea of just kind of, you know, looking at different parts of China and just shooting it? Um, and wh- what do you think you were you were building towards as you were doing it?
1: Yeah, so um, it Kind of started with a short that I made in 2017 that Kara also produced called Commodity City, which takes place in Iwu. And in there, in Iwu, um, is the largest wholesale mall in the world. It's a five mile wholesale mall where most of the cheap made in China products come from. And I was interested in this space um, just for partially for an aesthetic reason. I had seen, there were a lot of photo essays about this space of kind of overabundance and hyper-capitalism but also the paradox there between the alienation uh, and impersonal nature of the global supply chain, but simultaneously the intimacy of it, since most people in the world have a connection in this space without knowing it. And when I went there, I was struck by a lot of the scenes that were kind of unfolding in front of me of families raising young kids and public and just things that um, you don't, you know, the paradox between these like familiar intimate scenes of domestic you know things happening in front of you, but with um, people selling plastic grocery bags or mouse traps or buttons or glue, things that everyone touches and interacts with, but you don't think about the source of it. So from there, I became interested in looking at kind of the hidden economies that power our day-to-day consumer lifestyles. Mm-hmm. And originally, This um, untitled PRC project was had much smaller ambitions. It was going to be a trilogy of shorts or a series of shorts, maybe um, tracing this cycle of production, consumption, and waste. And it was going to be more um, about like from the point from the perspective of the life cycle of consumer goods, Mm -hmm. and really coming at it from a more environmental um, angle. Yeah, but as we first pitched it um, in 2017 at um, IFP in New York, and A, it's harder to get funding for something that's, um, that has an experimental spirit to it as a series, and it, it was more like almost um, tangible or legible as a feature in this kind of style. And B, someone was like, there's so many ideas in here. Why isn't this a feature?
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: I realized that I, mm. it is what I wanted to do all along, but there just aren't that many films out there that have this kind of model of like a series of vignettes. So it didn't seem feasible, but, you know, someone saying that kind of kicked it off. And then yeah. um, through all those meetings, it's funny, we actually didn't get a funder through the meetings. It was because Kira met someone um, at one of the events at a bar, um our sales is how we found our sales agent
2: it's a wild story because it was um, a really crowded bar and um this woman (laughs) in front of me was just like oh you know people here have no manners and I was like oh actually I'm working with the director who's filming in the manners school and she's like oh I went to finishing school and we ended up just having a conversation around that and she was like oh well here's my card we're starting to fund you know feature films
1: get in touch yeah wow yeah yeah. so random. Was the manor school um, the was it the um, etiquette one that I wanted to film in that we didn't get access to, like with the I think eating it was the so banana?
2: But then I found it when we were looking at the old text from a long time ago, it was also like the first and last things that you filmed, I think, were the Butler School and the, the manor Butler school. school. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, so the film, I, you know, I think the structure of the film, um, for those who, you know, get a chance to watch it, it aligns pretty clearly with the title, Ascension, which is it really begins with kind of at the, I guess, the bottom, quote-unquote, of the manufacturing chain. Um, you talk, you, you have shots of, uh, like, a meat factory, a packaged meat factory, a water bottle factory, clothing and rug factory, but then a, a, a sex doll factory. Uh, and then it kind of climbs up, right, into, like, the service industries, and you have these um, very candid shots of, Etiquette, finishing school, kind of places, but which are geared towards how do you do business? I assume with like Westerners or with foreign foreign business people. Um, you you look at like the training for bodyguards and the training for like restaurant workers and hotel workers, and then at the very kind of highest level, we get to like the really rich parts of China and the and the service, but also the the customers. Um, so you shot all over China and all sorts of different aspects of it. Were you thinking? Um, how long did it take? And like how did you choose your sites
1: um it took there was four different trips and between each trip i was coming home and getting footage translated organizing footage pulling selects each trip was like around five weeks and um how we chose the locations it really kind of snowballed and it was um, a whole process like because in between shoots um, i would come back and kind of look sift through footage the film really evolved over the course of the shooting process. So I mentioned originally it was supposed to be more environmentally driven, right. but um, as we were shooting, I realized the more interesting story and the more relevant story and also the pl- types of places we were getting access to had to do with a quest for upward mobility and a kind of study of materialism that is present in China but also mirrored in the west, the the rest of the world, in the Western world as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um so that's why, you know, as we kept going, it became more relevant to shoot in like malls and water parks and um to show these kinds of new jobs that are created out of the new elite class, like the bodyguard school and the butler school.
0: Right. Um but even as you kind of climb up to places like the water guards water water park for like very fancy high school students, but also like bodyguards and restaurants and hotels for the, for the rich, you always kind of keep the camera on the workers themselves also, right? Like the people making the rooms, the people cutting the grass. Um, Was that, I mean, what was your thought process there? Like, why didn't you want to just kind of focus on the conspicuous consumption? Like you also juxtapose it with the labor that goes into the making of these places.
1: Mm, Yeah. Because I, I think it's kind of showing all class lines at once and how, like the, it is sort of about climbing this economic ladder. And so it was important to remember the, um, yeah, it wasn't ever supposed to just be about the upper class or the lower class. It's kind of showing the whole accordion of this system at once, maybe. Right. Yeah, yeah. Also,
2: the moments where people interact, I think one of the things that, you know, when we were filming the water parks, we were filming the lifeguards. It was really right. specifically, uh, but then in those scenes, um, and one thing that Dan Deacon said that really stuck with him after working on this, which I thought was wild, is he said that now when he plays a show, he thinks about the people who are bartending, the people who are uh-huh. working the door, and that scoring the film made him realize that, like, you know, it's work for him, it's work for the people there, and then there's people having fun, but, like, yeah, you know, and, you know, obviously there's enormous inequality and class divides, but there's all these moments of interaction. Right. And you know, it's not as clean cut, like even in the scenes at the beginning of the film and at the end of the film, it's all happening at the same time.
0: Yeah. Um, I think one question that you you all kind of briefly already kind of referenced, and um, it's an enduring conversation, is um, to what degree are you showing something that makes China unique, as opposed to to what degree are you showing something about China that in a lot of ways mirrors the rest of the world? Um, I know, you know, I had a brief conversation with Kira before about uh, without necessarily shaming anyone, but like audience members might be reading this film in a way that's just talking, that in, in their minds is showing how China is so exotic and different. And they're like, they're coming after us in the United States, right? With this army of workers. Um, and I think, but obviously people could understand the film in a different way. Um, I guess my question is, you know, in your experience while you were there, Jessica, and, and Kara shooting this stuff, was your own impression, you know, or, or was your own idea about this question of like how unique is China or how comparable China is to the U.S. Was that was that was that evolving in your own head as you were shooting these places?
1: Yeah, that's very well phrased. Um, and I think the film goes into the uniqueness of China. It's very unique place in the world, but also these universal tropes that are not unique to China at the same time, which makes it a little bit confusing. Right. Um, but I mean. For me, like my part of the interest in China is understanding it as um, kind of a stage for these larger questions related to what economic progress looks like and what it means and the paradoxes mm-hmm. involved and the unintended consequences. And, you know, since the reform and opening of China in 1979, um, it's just undergone insane, such a collapsed timeline of, yeah. of, um, of its economic Rise, and so I think in a collapsed timeline, in a um, accelerated timeline, you see the extremes of of societies and cultures, and it it allows you to almost ask these larger questions of, well, what is this growth about? What does it mean? What is it for? And um, so when I'm thinking about the China, China, I'm thinking about the U.S. a lot. And one Mm. scene in there that really exemplifies it for me is at the Manor School. The scene where the women are learning exactly how to smile in order to, um, in order to, um, to kind of rise in the ranks of biz- business etiquette. Yeah, um, they're learning. You know, it seems kind of almost um, strange to an outsider. Right. But there's this Frederick Wiseman film uh, from 1984 called The Shop, where mm-hmm. there's a scene that's exactly that in Dallas, Texas, in uh-huh. Neiman Marcus. These Um, shopkeeper women are being trained by their manager literally how to smile, how to perform as salespeople for the customers. And this is, um, you know, this is 1980s Texas and then seeing some similarities to China today. So I think there's more parallels than maybe Americans would like to admit or would be comfortable admitting.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you want to do you want to set that up a little bit? Like, what was this? How did you find this school, and how did you? Um, I mean, you know, as, as one example, like, how did you get access to it, and um, what was the premise of this school? Like, who are the who are the people attending it, and who are the customers they were trying to serve?
1: Originally, um, I wanted to shoot in a manor school. It was a finishing school for like wealthy women and and this school appeared in the news a lot and there was like a scene where these women were learning how to eat a banana with a fork and a knife and the thing (laughs) cost ten thousand dollars or something (laughs) and I tried to shoot there but I was denied I think she didn't maybe she didn't like the media coverage um so one of our fixers who later became our co-producer Maggie Lee I was telling her that I was trying to shoot in a manor school and so she through her network was reaching out to a lot of places and she found this one for me and it was one that i couldn't i wouldn't have even known that something like this existed and it actually made even more sense for the film because it is manners explicitly um for the purpose of being able to you know rise the ranks within your um economic social status for business mm-hmm. business etiquette that's what it was called And one thing that was really surprising to me is that and it's not clear in there because it was kind of too complicated to get into. Like a lot of these places had such interesting backstories, but it was just too complicated to put everything in the film. But a lot of these women um, are actually manners teachers themselves and yeah, are coming here to learn the manners and then going back to their hometowns and teaching these manners to other people. So, so was this manners
0: school in Shanghai or Beijing or some big city?
1: Um, we were in Shanghai, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, was in, yeah, and so they come to Shanghai, they learn these things, and then they go back home and then teach these yeah. manners to other people, So, and that's their career. Yeah. So it's kind of this crazy cyclical yeah. thing.
2: It's kind of a sub-theme in a lot of them. Like the, There's like the Taobao Academy that's teaching people to live stream to be better salespeople, right. and then a lot of them can either just do sales or then go back and teach it further right. and um, yeah same in the butler school like the head of the butler school had herself gone and done you know hotel school training in Europe and in Taiwan and then had opened the school in Chengdu and so yeah a lot of it is I
1: mean a little bit pyramid scheming of a lot right. or, or right. transferring yeah. useful
2: skills that are actually helping
1: people get higher paying jobs. yeah and the I, women I think... themselves like um sorry no, Maggie, no. Maggie was telling me that a lot of the women themselves kind of Know that it's a uh, pyramid scheme, like they people think that there's not agency and that these people are being duped or whatever, but there's more agency than you know, people than you would, um, than some yeah. people would think to ascribe initially.
3: Yeah. And
1: these th- they know that it looks kind of ridiculous from the outside, but they're just trying to get ahead, and this is a way to get ahead, right? And right. the funny thing too is that Maggie said, um, even though this was a manor school. Um, she found that the people there were much ruder than a lot of the people that we filmed in in different factories and stuff. She was like, one of them sneezed into my coffee. So (laughs) it's not really about manners. Right, yeah, it's about appearances.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and I think one thing that's interesting is, you know, you don't see any American, any foreigner in the entire film, right? But America's kind of...
1: There's one, there's an Easter egg in there.
0: Okay, I have to look again, but it's kind of it's it's all throughout the film in the sense that you can tell that these things, first the physical goods are being aimed towards overseas markets. There's, I think, a lot of people have written about. There's a scene of an embroidery embroidery machine embroidering a piece of cloth, piece of clothing that says "Make America" or "Keep America Great," right, which is obviously right. a reference to like the U.S. market. Um, but then and that's where you-
1: we, by the way, that's where we discovered that um slogan.
0: Because it was like before the good. campaign. It
1: was a it year was before, before the election. Campaign. Oh, you
0: yeah. shot this like in twenty fifteen. Okay. Oh, no, wow. no, no, but, no, no. This
1: is the twenty twenty one.
0: 20, oh, okay. Yeah, oh, that, he had 20, a different 19. slogan? Okay, okay.
1: Because first it was make America great again. Right, right. And then when oh, he was okay. running again, it was keep America great. And when I when I tried to shoot at a MAGA hat factory and they didn't, you know, have <laughs> the hats because all of them had been shipped to Canada for some reason. And so instead he was making these scarves and I said, um, keep, America, uh, keep America great. And I was like, no, no, that's the wrong one. And they were like, no, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, like it, a, it's a bootleg me. one.
0: That's the new one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, I was in I was in China when Trump got elected. That was the worst, weirdest day of my life. I was oh, like, "Is wow. this real?" I was yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, but I, what I was, but I was thinking, even as you move up the, the the chain as such, and you go to like the the Butler School and the Etiquette School, they'll have these lessons that are like, "Well, we Chinese people don't like to hug, but if you do business with like a non Chinese person, you have to learn how to accept their hug <laughs> and hug them back, or bear the hug, right? Or like uh, in the in the fancy restaurant, it's like when these you know, I guess this could be a rich Chinese person, but like when, when these rich foreigners come in, let them boss you around and blah, blah, blah. So like there, so there's this whole there's this kind, of, this kind of presence of the United States or presence of the global market, even as even as you're filming just about China. Um, do you feel like were, were you? I don't want to get into attent- intentions, but like what do you what do you feel like your footage was kind of telling you about like the relationship between China and the world market or like what could Americans kind of take away from from this film about China?
1: It's like, I, I think that the relationship, the U.S. and China together have a really schizophrenic relationship where um, both kind of admire and fear and compete with the other, in, but in different ways. And so what I noticed was in China, um, people, they still revere people in the West and Americans, but simultaneously want to kind of withdraw that as their um, as their aim for the center of power and culture and so there is of course this whole you know back to our roots confucianism and traditional values um but it seems like this push-pull right
0: right yeah um Um,
1: there's like a fetishization and simultaneous rejection and dismissal at the same time right of but i mean just quick sorry quickly like this makes me think of the that easter egg thing i was saying that okay. the one like white guy in the film he's like <laughs> one of those um hired performers kind of he's in that club um the it's a club in beijing i think it was and he is like dancing um and he has this like bud nights uh, cuz i think it's like a bud Bud Light commercial, he has <laughs> Bud okay. Nights. You, ha- you can only see it if it's like on a big screen or if you like look close up and he's just like trying to promote it and it's just, it's kind of sad, but it's pretty funny.
0: I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, one, I mean, uh, on this question, Kara or, or Jessica, you know, could you talk maybe in general generalities about the audience reception in terms of, do you feel like people, American, American audiences that you've, Um, Talk to, do you feel like they are reading this as China's exceptional and unique and scary, or are they reading this as, oh, this place is just like us and is not as exotic as we thought it was?
2: We've gotten so many different reactions. Like, I think at this point, it's really impossible to synthesize. And so many, um, and one of the most interesting conversations that I had was in Montreal, because everyone there immediately understood it was something about capitalism and just wanted to talk about those kinds of ideas. And Apparently, you know, I mean, Montreal is a different scene. Um, and that was really interesting. And I think everyone picks up something totally different in it. Um, we've gotten a lot of, um, I guess what I might want to call like people who love it for the wrong reasons, which I found very strange because they think it's saying, it, it's really a mirror to what their own biases already were. Um, and that has happened in every single direction. And it's quite surprising. Um, but no, I think that the thing that I love the most is so many people have had extremely nuanced reactions. Um, whether they're very familiar with China or not, whether they had a connection through heritage or through work and people really just saying that it showed them a side of things that they hadn't seen and it was making them think of things in a different way. Yeah,
3: um,
2: And that has been really encouraging. Um,
3: yeah.
2: And for every one person who has a very odd take and sort of yeah. has some sort of platitudes to say about what this means about China and the U S it, I think that's like, for every one of those 100 people who have had just really nuanced, interesting things and like has drawn parallels, kind of like Jessica was saying, that like, there's no moment where this feels like it's a comprehensive portrait of, like, it's not trying to say China is blank. And right. there's no way we could have set out to do anything like that. So that's been great that people are really picking up on.
0: Yeah, Jessica, do you have any any sort of memorable reactions in terms of, like, is this about exotic China or not de-exoticizing China.
1: Yeah, like Kira was saying, I think for the most part, people kind of appreciate it for its nuances. And um, some people from China have reached out and said, oh, this, who have left China, say like, oh, this reminds me of my love-hate relationship with China, which I can appreciate because it's trying <laughs> to embrace, you know, all all of it, the good and the bad simultaneously. Yeah but um you know there are those few people who are like i don't see how this film is about humanity and i don't see the humanity in it it seems like dehumanizing and it's like it's painful um for sure because uh-huh. it's uh-huh. not the it's you know not what we set out and intended to make but i've come to terms with realizing that um ultimately it's kind of the price that i pay for making a film that leaves so much to the to the audience to to draw their own conclusions Um, and something, you know, it's just, it's not the type of film where I'm telling you what to think and, and what to feel. And ultimately, I guess that it's really trying to have uh, confidence in a viewer's sense of empathy. And so when we do get those reactions, it does feel a little bit off putting. Um, and yeah, it's, it's disheartening for sure, but luckily that's been in the minority. And and like Tammy said, I feel like in the chat, it's like, we also were like,
2: how did we watch the same film? Like we, like there's so many moments of people really kind of pushing back against things and like not wanting to pay the bribe or not wanting to go along with things. And I think that's where it's, um, yeah, like Jessica kind of disheartening because people have a very... And this has usually been older white guys who have just been like, "Oh, <laughs> these poor people in China. What is right. like?"
1: And we're just like, right. "What
2: movie did you watch right. um, that you feel like people?" And I think, unfortunately, people don't have a very deep understanding that a lot of terms and this happened in press reviews. Like people say things like, "Things look alien or robotic," and it's like just they don't realize the racist tropes that they're still perpetuating. Mm, right. And it it's hard to hear, obviously, but it's also something that we've realized, you know. Yeah. We're up against a lot of existing media and a lot of preconceived ideas that hopefully this film, for, you know, right. the 99% of people who watch it come don't uh, come away with what it actually is. They
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot uh, of times when when there are those headlines, it's like, it. I've seen headlines where it's like simultaneously alien and familiar at the same time. So they kind of, you know kind of get it and are seeing like
0: the two-sidedness of it so yeah um last question before we open it up um i thought it would be we should at least talk a little bit about um jessica you wrote this really interesting essay about how you came across the title of the film um i'm sure you've talked about this a lot but i mean maybe do you want to kind of um maybe really quickly kind of tell us like how what is ascension like what is what is this the title of this film and um I, it just, was it just like this magical coincidence that it's aligned so well with the film that you're already making?
1: Yeah, it kind of was this magical coincidence where <laughs> on the last last shoot that I went on in December 2019, um, I mentioned to my mom that I was going to this city called Changsha in Hunan province because that's where we were filming at this air conditioning factory, which is that scene where you see people in military fatigues um, kind of doing these exercises for the company. Right. Um, But it turns, my mom told me, it turns out that's where my um, grandfather and great grandfather are from, which I didn't know since um, she had never been there. Um, Yeah. So, you know, I was like, oh, cool. And so I mentioned this to, uh, to Kira and then she put me in touch with a scholar in the historian in, in that city, because she has all these connections to different cities in China because of China residencies. And so then um, I was like, oh, this is so random. I messaged him on WeChat, but, you know, my family, this my great-grandfather was supposedly this famous poet. I don't know if it's true or not. And then within a day and a half, he found relatives of mine in the city, which yeah. seemed, it seemed so improbable. It was almost hard to believe um, in a city of one, in a country of, you know, 1.4 <laughs> billion people or whatever. Um, but they, you know, it they had a, photo of my um of my aunt when she graduated high school that my grandfather had sent them it was yeah it was crazy so they i went and visited the house of, that my grandfather grew up in it was really moving and um but also the the head of the poetry society that my great grandfather used to be part of came and he brought um one of the books that my great grandfather wrote of poetry his name was Jiangzi and yeah. um i didn't get to take it home because it lived in a museum but all these months later when we had to submit to our first festival and, you know, finally up mm-hmm. to a title and we were really having so many different ideas, but none of them were sticking. Um, and Kira was like, why don't you look back at your at the poems? <laughs> and it didn't seem like it would work out. Um, it seemed kind yeah. of far-fetched. But one of them was called Ascension. And then uh, reading it, I felt like I could feel these themes emerging that felt like it was echoing the film which was the way I understood it about the paradox of progress. So Mm -hmm. in the poem, the narrator, presumably my great-grandfather, ascends to the height of a tower and sees the invading territories. And this was in 1912, so the fall of the last empire.
0: Right.
1: And like a time of great political turmoil and, and great change. And so once he ascends to the height of the tower, he's able to see all of this turmoil and feels great anxiety. And so... In the film, I think that, you know, we think that um, climbing up the economic ladder will relieve our worries, but in fact, it creates these unforeseen consequences sometimes. So yeah. that's where, you know, I saw some of the parallels and yeah. that's how we got the title.
0: No, that's awesome.
2: Such a wild story. And I feel like every time we look back on the, on the poem, too, we've worked with a lot of amazing scholars and translators and everyone else has a different interpretation of it. Um, but it's... I mean, the fact that something from literally 100 years ago is also this idea of I'm really trying to like get to a point where you can see something from a different perspective
3: mm-hmm. and
2: try to understand what's going on from not an individual level but a society level is something that i think um, artists and you know jessica's own ancestors have been yeah. trying to do for generations
1: and that kind of gives me chills yeah mm-hmm.
0: are, jessica are you still in contact with your relatives or do you have plans to keep talking to them in the future
1: yeah, we're in touch on WeChat. Um, I really want to go back and visit. You know, obviously right. with um, COVID, it's hard to just take a casual trip. But totally. I, I hope someday, you know, it's on my list of things that I want to do. To go cool. back and hang out there. I love that cool. city, too.
0: Okay, I'll, I'll just start reading questions until people chime in. So one question is from um, a member of the Discord named Paprika, um, who Kira knows. And the question was, um, the film crew... is so. They claim that the film crew was able to actually screen the documentary with some of the workers in China that were being filmed um, Is that true, and you know what was the response among those workers or and, and and maybe more generally, have you shown this to other people in China what was the reaction? what has been the reaction um,
1: what we we I haven't have, held like yeah. a screening for for people in the movie if that's
3: oh, okay. i don't know where
1: they heard that but um yeah. We have been sending it individually to people to kind of try to get reactions and, you know, because they wanted to kind of stay in touch and see what they thought about the movie. So a lot of people have been hard to reach and kind of aren't responding. um, (laughs) Yeah. But or don't really seem to care. Um, Uh But, you know, some of the people, like, where it's more self-serving, I guess, um, like Uh the boss, the principal of the Etiquette School, Mm -hmm. he um, was very proud and posting it on his WeChat. I'm not sure, like, what he thought exactly about the film, but I think he was excited to hear that it was um, shortlisted. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, I would love to hold a screening for the people who are in
2: been able to have any public screenings in china yet and so far none of the festivals in china have accepted the film and so mm-hmm. we we actually did a, an interview with the really cool wechat account uh last night and they're saying yeah like people are talking about it but um it seems like it's being taken down in a few places
0: All Right.
2: leak too so um we haven't been able to get over there and maggie is in shanghai right. um like we're trying to figure out how to show it more broadly but right now it's really just
0: been echoes yeah. that we've been getting from individual people so do, you, so do you feel in China then it's been very much like under wraps What have you thought about maybe showing it um, getting it shown in like places like Singapore Taiwan Hong Kong It's probably out of the question but um, other parts of Asia
1: we submitted to a bunch of um, our, our sales agent is the one who submits for us and mm-hmm. we had them submit to a lot of Asian film festivals which they were planning to anyway um, yeah but so far, I don't think we've gotten into any. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's played in Korea a few times. It's played. Um, oh, really? It's
2: also oh. yeah. It's just been oh. hard for us to keep track because we're also not there,
0: right?
3: And
2: like everything's been happening virtually. Um, but I think it did play in Singapore, um, and yeah. But it's, it's the thing with film festivals too is it's hard to find out about these screenings. Uh, yeah. We're hoping um, it just came out in the UK. We're, yeah, there's a whole. It kind other of has a
1: life outside of, of us because we're not the ones who are handling distribution.
0: Right, yeah. right. Um, yeah.
1: So, I mean, in terms yeah. of people in China who've seen the movie, it's been you know from us sending private links directly to yeah. um, to friends, the relatives, people who worked on the film, and then more recently we've been trying to do directly sending it to people who are in the film. But like I said, a lot of them yeah. just kind of don't respond.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Understandably.
1: Right, yeah, totally. It's like, who cares? Actually, you know, some of the people in the Butler School, recently we sent it to them, they mm-hmm. didn't remember us. Which, oh, really? I mean, it's, it's, it's fair, you know, because <laughs> I'm so sure long. they have a lot of film crews coming through. Yeah, Maggie's uh, okay. like, hey, do you remember this shoot a few years ago? They were like, 2018, like, that's ancient <sighs> history. <laughs>
0: uh, so one question um, from the Discord was kind of about this question of, the film itself, um, they felt the film was trying to critique commodification, but might also at times lapse into also uh, risk commodifying the actual subjects, right? And I guess this might get into like the co- sort of, you know, the ethical question of all documentaries, right? How, how conscious were you all of this fact of, or this this balance, I guess, between critiquing the commodification of these workers, but also perhaps participating in it as well, you know, putting on a film and circulating it for the rest of the world?
1: Right. Um, in terms of the filmmaking style, um, yeah, I kind I understand that question, and there's two layers to it because one is like the actual style itself, where it's observational and um, you know, without any exposition or dialogue or interviews even. and I can see how um, that can come across as um, in a way commodifying because it's creating another a layer of distance. But um, I, this goes back to kind of what I was saying before, like the price that I pay is risking that you know, people will mm-hmm. read into it. The price that I pay in terms of making a film that doesn't have a political agenda or doesn't have some sort of propaganda angle like a lot of documentaries do. A lot of documentaries mm-hmm. want you to feel a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas in, this, in my filmmaking style, it's kind of trying to hold multiple feelings and, and truths at once simultaneously. Yeah and also for me like i'm less drawn towards the interview format because i feel like people tend to perform and portray themselves as they want to be seen rather than um mm-hmm. yeah rather than kind of observing in the moment yeah and but then there's also the level of commodification in terms of the film itself as like a product since it's being pushed out there into the world and that's something that uh, and it's ironic since it's like a film kind of about capitalism and commodification and here we are on this awards right. campaign. And so that's totally. been a, dis- a dissonant experience for me um, mm-hmm. personally. I don't know how you feel, but probably yeah. similar. No, and it's, it's um a- but for yeah. me, like ultimately, I'm trying to approach it with curiosity. Like this whole, because it, it's a whole other world that I'm entering into now that I don't know anything about in terms of the awards campaign and stuff like that. And so, trying to approach approach it with an open mind and open heart, and just and being curious about it in the same way that I was curious and open to hear what was you know the film was telling me.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think yeah, it's just sort of a mindfuck because when we set out to make this as independent filmmakers, we never could have imagined a world where it the film itself would become a unit of thing that another company was selling and buying billboards for. And that level of thing, um, even just, you know, when some of the people want to make a like swag or a merch for the film, we're just like, oh my God, have you seen the film? Like it's, there's this layer of things that that is just how the world currently works. And when you talk about it and you show it, you can't help but replicate it in some ways. And that's just how all of this is very like, inextricable um but i think you know we are where we are and what like jess said like we're just along for this ride and trying to figure out um, yeah. what we can do with this now and where this can take us and hopefully us the door for so many more filmmakers to make things in this mm-hmm. style or in a way that's not as didactic um mm-hmm. and yeah, I think it's just, yeah, we, we immediately floated being like, well, we can contact the factories and, you know, we can get in touch. And we offered to, to um, have the Spicy Duck Neck be merch and they were like, no, <laughs> I think that would be brilliant. But yeah, I think, yeah, exactly what Jess said. It's, it's it's a really fascinating process that I think all artists also have to deal with at some point because, you know, we right. also have rent to pay. and um, Right. Shout out okay. to Amanda, who's here and my co-director at China Residence. He's like, we think about this all the time of like, you know, when people create things, like who else benefits and like in the film, like what's the collateral unintended consequences of having mm-hmm. put things out
0: in the world? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, why did you feel, Jessica, you said you didn't, you didn't want to make a propaganda film. Why did you feel, I mean... Besides, like, the Propaganda in the
1: loose sense. Right, but why
0: did you... Like, you must have opinions, right? So why did you not want to um, kind of hit the viewer over the head with opinions? Do you feel like that's just something that's missing? Like, a a sort of... A film like this is kind of missing?
1: I think, um, for me, that's the realm of journalism. I would rather read an opinion piece than watch... Because, for me, documentary is about cinema, and it's about the art form of it, rather than a polemic and um i would rather you know read an opinion piece than than watch one and <laughs> if i yeah if i watch yeah. something i'm i'm watching it because i want to watch cinema, not because i'm trying to get facts or information
0: right how how self conscious were you? I, I guess this is tied to a question um from one of the discord members uh Doraemon, or Doraemon. Um, he was talking about how there's these typical scenes we have of Chinese factories, which is like Foxconn, you know, or steel factories, just the kind of stuff that you would find broadcast on, like in some sort of like New York Times expose of like Chinese labor, right? But you show things that people probably don't know about, like the Butler School, the Bodyguard School, of uh, you know, a boot camp for air conditioner factory workers, um, also a sex doll factory, right? So these are kind of like mundane. Things that might make sense that they're there, but you don't actually think about them you know as a sort of American thinking about china. um how how self-conscious were you of trying to like find new stuff to to show about China and not just doing foxconn um over and over?
1: Um, yeah, it's funny because one of the places that we wanted to film in and that that's in the film, um it's it comes at the end as a rare earth's mineral mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's where you see you know the mines, and it's this crazy landscape kind of shot. And when we were trying to get access to it, I think Kira was talking to one of her friends who's a journalist who was like, wait, why are you trying to shoot this? That's like so, you know, 2017 news cycle. Like, <laughs> that's kind of like no one cares about that anymore. And so I realized this was a slow documentary. This was a slow process. And it it wasn't about trying to chase these hot spots. It was about looking at places that have been hot button topics, but looking at it in kind of a different way. A slower way um right. and so in that sense I wasn't even though I was looking at places that were like trending in the news I wasn't trying to chase that news cycle because it's not something that I could have ever kept right up with
0: right yeah I mean it sounds like listening to your a lot of your answers today one of the kind of defining qualities of your experience in China was speed and how fast things move and how a lot of your subjects don't even remember you anymore um yeah.
1: Since we spent such limited time with them, too, I mean, yeah. we, the most time we'd spent was maybe three days in a single location, but usually it was two days,
0: right. Okay. so super fast. Yeah. but but, I, yeah, it kind of struck me as I was watching it. The first few scenes are factories that you might know exist, like clothing factories. Everyone's heard of sweatshops, right? But then you go into things that I didn't know existed. I mean, I it's not surprising that they exist, but I had never like read an article about them, like the uh, the economy of you know, influencers. And people who just kind of shoot themselves on Instagram all the time. Um, and so I think, in a way, you're, I was kind of thinking the film is a progression through, like, Chinese history itself. Like, the beginning of the stages of reform and opening into, like, the latest 21st century versions of it. Um, was that something you were, you were also kind of thinking about as you were at least editing the film?
1: yeah uh editing and shooting too trying to show like the progression of the how the economy has evolved in china exactly so right um i mean i was trying we actually filmed in the headquarters of Kuaishou, the um you know streaming video platform, and we mm-hmm. were trying to film with these kinds of tech companies um but the stuff that we filmed there wasn't actually as interesting. there's one shot that makes it in, but um yeah, definitely. Trying to you, you said it,
2: yeah. and like really update people's idea of you know, like because it's it's moved so far beyond goods. And one thing that doesn't right. really register in the film, but um, we really want to film cryptocurrency mines, and it sort of ends up at the end. It doesn't it? Doesn't look like much, but we're really yeah. it's it's very hard to visualize what um, you know work and labor really looks like, um, yeah. especially when people's mental images are still very stuck in. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily outdated. There are still textile factories. It's just a lot of those have already moved to Southeast Asia or to other countries. And, you know, capital is always going to find cheaper labor somewhere. And so right. in some sense, while this sort of these extractive processes that are happening, we wanted to show the snapshot in time of what was going right. on in 2018 and 2019.
0: Right. In terms of that final scene, um, I didn't catch this until, you know, I, I think I read about it or you, one of you told me, about, or you know, Kira told me about it. Um, the last thing is about a cryptocurrency mine. Like what is what a crypto farm? Like what, what I think I kind of know what that means, but like, how did you stumble upon this?
1: Um, I think that was also one of those things that was like in the news cycle. Um, just the, again, um, a lot of the film was about finding places where there was a visual paradox involved and, The cryptocurrency mine embodied this because the cryptocurrency mines set up in the countryside in these rural, remote areas, mountainous areas, because energy is much cheaper there. And so a lot of farmers would come and tend to the cryptocurrency mines, which are just computers that are generating like Bitcoin or whatever. And so there was this juxtaposition of that, um, the cutting edge of finance, global finance, (laughs) with um, countryside farmers working on these cryptocurrency mind. So that kind of summed up a lot of what I was interested in. but um, mm-hmm. it didn't it wasn't as visually uh, appealing or immediately clear, you know, of course, what we're seeing. Um, but that end scene of the people, the retirees and the young children who are um, swimming in the river, it's kind of this one of the few moments we see of I, I feel like true leisure. Because it's not in a structured kind of water park setting; it's actually in nature. Um, but the right. thing that's not um, seen in the film that we don't know is that that it's actually a dam that's powering the cryptocurrency mine. Oh,
0: okay, yeah. So there's a, yeah, yeah. Because that scene does appear sort of exceptional. It's like maybe you trying to you're trying to end the film with a sort of poetic. This was what life was like before. All this stuff happened, the sort of, here's the natural body of water. Um, one of the listeners commented about, you know, the last scene is um, people who, they're older people who are going for a swim, and there's also young children. Um, in a way, these are like the only people, or one of the few people in the whole film that are not of, not of working age, quote unquote. Um, was that something that you were, what, what, what was interesting about that uh, in terms of putting that in the film and, um, you know, thinking about that in relationship to the other scenes?
1: Yeah, because the whole film, it's so much about driving productivity and seeing people in the age of the workforce. So this last scene is kind of a respite from all of that, seeing people outside of that age range of the workforce where they're they're retired or they're children.
0: Yeah. Um, So there's no other questions, I guess. One other question I had, and out of curiosity, is um, how did you get Dan Deacon to do the soundtrack?
1: Um. Well, it's kind of a crazy thing. He is based in Baltimore and Commodity City. That film that I mentioned played at um, Maryland Film Festival in Baltimore. And he's a cinephile and he scores films. And so he went to that festival. He loves that festival. Um, It's great. And he saw Commodity City there. But then, um, you know, years later, the other producer, Nate Truesdell, he had a connection with Dan somehow because of, like, he works on, he used to work on awards shows, like documentary award shows, and so he had a way to to get to him. And he had met him a few times at some, like, film festival stuff because Dan is also in the film world too. Um, So, yeah, he just, you know, kind of reached out to him, showed him some early footage, and Dan, like, immediately got it and and was down.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I really feel like his music, I don't know, it's like a... a character in the film i don't know if that's corny to say no no, no, no. i
1: was totally <laughs> <an amazing laughs> girl. Show. yeah uh we have a
0: question awesome. oh sorry Ker. we have a question from a listener but Kerr if you want to finish with thought
2: oh no i was dan is amazing to work with on this because the way he collaborated with just, with just as a totally like conceptual artist the score like ascends the harmonic scale as the film goes um. on and it also becomes more and more out of harmony and when he told that to us, I mean, I hate that we didn't pick up on it, but when he told us, it's just made it so much, there's yeah. just so much depth
0: there. That's cool. Vince, do you want to ask a question?
3: Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I, I, I have a comment and then a question. Um, so one, my my wife and I, we're, we're actually I'm in Shanghai, uh, my wife and I are expats here um when we we watched the film and we, we just thought it was really amazing and really we we've been here for 11 years and kind of really encapsulates a lot that we see visually but you know don't know how to explain uh to uh you know people back home um and uh you know it actually i was thinking of like i wanted when i started watching the film i was like this would be amazing to share with my son who's Eight, but then the sex doll scene came up. and I was like,, ah, we'll hold off on that for a while. Um, but thank you for just producing such a such a you know beautiful and uh, arresting film. Um, oh, thank I did want to for watching, yeah. um I, I you know, I did want to ask about um because I think we mentioned earlier about kind of the process of um, I think your your time in Changsha and like meeting your relatives and family. And I had read that article that Kira had um you know put in the chat. And I, I, was, I it was interesting because of, um, I think, some of the reactions of your family um, about um, your, you know, reconnecting, um, you know, with that part of the family. And, you know, I have other friends out here who are actually, uh, you know, like Taiwanese-American who've ended up here in China. And, and there have some have had some similar stories about family who are, like, kind of reluctant or I have these who've never come to the mainland and are like, why would you go to the mainland? And. Um I maybe there's a little bit uh not not so directly related to the film but um was was kind of interested in uh, like what your family's like relationship or, like the family that moved to the US like w- like have they been to the mainland or um or or are they just completely want to keep distant from it
1: um I don't know about my aunt um but my mom definitely has but not really as like um too, find family or anything just to to travel um
0: yeah
1: and then it's also kind of complicated because they were actually born in japan which i can't remember if i went into in that article so there's also a connection to japan too and that's sort of more of like my mom's younger sister she goes to japan sometimes to feel like reconnected with her heritage there um so it's all pretty fragmented
0: what so yeah? You mentioned in this article your mom and aunt were very suspicious, kind of, or very hesitant that you connected with your family. Why did you feel like that was important to include in the article? Like, why do you think that tells the reader about like, um, or like yeah? Why did you think that was important yeah. or interesting?
1: I don't. I thought it was just so um, shocking to me that they would be mm-hmm. like, oh, what is this? Some kind of scam? You know, it was just kind <laughs> of sad and just showed sort of the the disconnection and the the fractured nature of immigration and time and how um yeah and also this ongoing suspicion and hostility between um between both nations unfortunately even you know even though my family you know my mom's like of Chinese descent born in Japan um and her older sister was born in China there's still kind of this rift
0: and suspicion of like the different um governments and nationalities yeah 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 so and it cuts deep right it cuts yeah down to the family level
1: yeah
0: um we have one more question do you have time for one more do you want to go
1: yeah okay so
0: one more question this from jules in the chat um you all can read it but i'll read it out loud um was there one particular scene that felt particularly performative how did they get and how did you get access there's a dinner um i think that's the scene that a lot of people will wind up Writing about and noticing about, uh, because there was dialogue in there where you have these great, kind of fancy people in China um, talking about travel abroad and also mentioning that they were traveling to Xinjiang in a very sort of off the cuff, matter of fact way. Um, and so for this, for for Jewels, he says that was the most disturbing part of the entire film.
1: Yeah, and the and not just yeah going to Xinjiang, but to open a ski resort, which is um, yeah funny because that's not what comes to mind when a lot of like westerners think of Xinjiang now but um how we got access um one of our field producers um Mijia, she i told her i was trying to shoot in this scene with um more elites and trying to show all the different class lines and one of them one of the scenes that i had envisioned actually was like a karaoke room where there was like businessmen with like women that they hire. I was trying to shoot that for a really long time. And one of our fixers, Jack suggested that we stage it and I considered it for a while. And then I was like, no, I don't think even <laughs> if I stage it, um, I, I don't think we could do it good enough that it would be, that it would be real. Cause all of it had to be stuff that wasn't coming from me. It had to be things that were already happening. So right. then um, Mijia, she, had shot with this one person who was in a BBC piece, I think it was, for like, it was kind of like a, not celebrity profile, but like, oh, lifestyles of Beijing's um, Mm -hmm. elite class, elite people, like, day Mm -hmm. in the life of. And so she asked this woman, her name actually, her English name was also Jessica, and she asked her if she would be in this documentary. And she said yes. um, And these were her friends. It's the the person at the head of the table. That's his dessert club. Um, mm-hmm. It was like a 10-course kind of meat dessert meal, which I had never heard of before. Yeah. And he collects um, antiques. He collects Western antiques and Chinese antiques. And he said, I could film with them. And do I want to look at the Western antiques or the Chinese antiques that he collects? And um, I thought both would be interested, interesting, but I chose the Western antiques because I thought it would be like an interesting parallel to at the beginning of the film you see like the um the cheap uh made in china products in the factories and then at the end you see the upper class people who have like jumped up the right capital level and then are kind of fetishizing these western antiques and of course there's that amazing um line about the westerners big noses for the cops (laughs) um but that was how we got access because she had shot with one of them before and a lot of people do point to that scene as seeming kind of um stiff and or not stiff um performative Mm
3: -hmm. and
1: um they ask if it was staged it wasn't staged I think it's just because I mean firstly it shows kind of like people in that world maybe are more stiff than what we what had come before (laughs) it um but also I think they feel more self-conscious and there's there was even this line that I cut out but I kind of wish I kept in there where so, they said something like, oh, we're wearing masks so we can say whatever we want. And when they said masks, they meant um, like because they were wearing suits and dresses, like wearing the clothes of the elites, it, they kind of felt like they could get away with more or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was too confusing with COVID at the time, I was thinking about like, right. face masks. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. that whole scene is amazing because they're
2: all so aware of not just sort of the cameras because it's a very very long scene but they're so aware of what all of them think of each other and even I feel like a lot of them make statements and kind of pull them back or they say one thing and they're like I'm patriotic but not too much they're very um, specific and very um, measured Measured. in how they talk about themselves and it's amazing to see people kind of perform in that way and I think it's um, it's also kind of what everyone else is being trained to do, you know? And right. so I think that really commonly like they have had that training either explicitly or implicitly and are performing to a T.
0: Yeah. They've made and it also, to the top of the of the tower. Yeah, yeah Jessica?
1: Um, there's um, this is something that actually Isabel, our mutual friend in Hong Kong, had pointed out that um, in contemporary China there's so much moral ambiguity. And it's kind of it. It lends itself to this kind of circuitous conversation where nothing's explicit is ever really said.
0: And you think they were saying that that is specific to this sort of Beijing elite, or just that's kind of a universal thing to, among rich people.
1: No, no, just in in general in contemporary China, where like the that the morals are just so um, yeah, ambiguous and it's right. in terms of knowing yeah. what to value.
0: And yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a really fascinating film um, and I encourage, you know, listeners to try to find it. Um, I'm, I assume at some point it'll be quite uh, available, widely released, but um, in the meantime, thanks so much, Jessica and Kira for taking time. Thanks for making the film and thanks for taking time to talk to us.
1: Thank you for having us and for this engaged audience. It's really great to see all of these people um, engaging with it and, you know, still pretty surreal for me that people are interested in it. So that's very cool. Thank you all so
2: much. you